0: I'm Anna,
1: I'm Anthony, I'm John, and I'm Grim.
0: And it is my favorite month again, it is the Woman in Horror Month. Um, and over the years on this podcast we have discussed Green Queens, Final Girls, women behind the scenes, and horror hostesses. So this year we thought we would dedicate an episode to the evolution of the representation of women in horror. Female representation has come a long way, but still has a long way to go. Uh, we've gone from damsels in distress all the way up to final girls. It seems to me at least that every time we take one step forward in progression with women representation, we take two steps back.
1: I think a lot of that has to do with the way that women were presented in film from the very beginning, where you usually had these roles of the damsel in distress and you had women as plot devices to move the male characters along. It was a trope that you know we saw in everything from King Kong to
2: Creature in the Black Lagoon and even something like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. You guys know I will take any opportunity I can get to talk about The Contested Castle. I love this book. I think everybody should read it, but there really is something to be said about the uh, societal climate surrounding when these films were made. There's an expectation of what women were supposed to be. You were supposed to be the caretaker. You were supposed to be supposed to take care of the home. Um, you're supposed to bring up the children. And we see so much of that reflected in horror things like the contested castle and these gender roles and these uh, having that damsel in distress character transferred over into a genre like horror, it takes some of the ideas that we've already seen in things like Jane Austen novels where women are defying what's expected of them and turns it into this actual survivor case. Like, you have to defy these gender roles or you're not making it out of here alive.
3: I mean, it plays back into the entire male ego and how fragile it is so the as men we can only feel superior and accomplished if we're the one doing the saving if we're the one that takes this damsel in distress and saves her from uh, you know her untimely death
0: yeah like as you said men feeling that they need to save the day and they need to be the hero and women are to be saved um ties into a lot from the very beginning of horror and the first instance that I can think of also tying into Jane Austen ideal of romantics and how toxic men can be we see a lot of that in the 1932 White Zombie um, we see Bella Lugosi's character seeing falling in love with this woman purely based on looks um, her being owned by another guy already so he goes to a witch doctor to try and find a way of luring her away from this guy so that he can claim her for himself. And it's portrayed to be still romantic. It's it, in some guy's ideals at that time. It was rom- seen to be, and even some women's, they were trained to be, f- to think that it was romantic for a guy to be so obsessive and so possessive of a girl that he would do anything to claim her as his own. Completely ignoring the fact that in no way shape or form is that romantic
2: there is so much of that in horror especially throughout um, things like the slashers where we really see that obsession come to light it's all about that possessiveness you get these slashers who are so obsessed with their uh with their female protagonist we build franchises off of it michael has been stalking lori for 30 40 years it doesn't even have to be a romantic obsession. It is just that looming presence of that male domination.
1: I think that's why slashers and and monsters in particular work so well when they're played up against the, the damsel in distress that they are trying to also possess. You know, I, I brought up King Kong before. That is just a classic tale of this monster going over, you know, feeling the need to possess this woman. And it's... It's so amazing that that ties back to actually one of the original uh, co-writers of King Kong.
0: Yeah, so the uh, original story of King Kong was co-written by Ruth Rose, and you can sort of see that in the way that Misunderstood Monsters has always been a really alluring thing for women, I feel, in horror, because it's... This ideal that is ingrained into our heads of like oh they're misunderstood and oh they're just acting out we can change them and that's what I see is uh, I mean that's one of the most toxic things in in womanhood please you can never change someone <laughs> oh. hashtag you can I can never fix change him. them You horror. can never fix them run horror that is true that horror
2: Florence Nightingale syndrome so bad uh, and mm-hmm. that really leans into that <laughs> contested castle. Also, what blows my mind about that and in an instance like King Kong specifically, I know that everybody loves the line, t'was beauty that killed the beast, but like straight up, they're still saying it was her fault.
0: Yeah. (laughs) 100%. Yeah.
2: We just have to immediately
1: go back and remind everyone that, oh, had it not been for her, you know,
0: being (laughs) a tenth
1: of his size, he would have been fine. Yeah. Which we see time and time again. We're constantly, we're constantly placing the blame on the woman, whether it's that she was just too beautiful. Of course, Bela was going to go to a witch doctor to turn her into a zombie. She was just, you know, too alluring. Of course, King Kong was going to scoop her up and try to take her uh, up to the Empire State Building. It just always circles back to it being the woman's fault and the woman having to face some sort of punishment for, for
2: being seemingly just, just being there. For, for being. being attractive, for being its its full objectification.
3: That's not even just horror. That's real life. I mean, how many of um you know, children in school right now you, you have <clears throat> girls who aren't allowed to wear tank tops because it might be disrupting to the teacher or other male um students in class? I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. And this idea of you know sex sells and it's sex 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 and that's all we think about i mean if you're just taught that from day one what do you expect
2: it's wild how you know to this day films like rebecca are still relevant
0: completely and rebecca is rebecca is one of my favorite books of all time um it was written by daphne de marier in 1938 which is like insane in that time period that gaslighting was being written about by the for the first time um because we think of gaslighting as such a new term but it's it's really not it's it's one something that's been happening forever but two it was called the first time it was referred to as gaslighting was in 1990 is 1944 with the film gaslighting It's the first time i heard it being used anyway i was there in 1944 obviously um (laughs) but i mean that film is the first time that i've heard it like the earliest reference of the term gaslighting and in rebecca is the the classic story of a woman marrying a guy and really figuring out that there are a lot of red flags and him convincing her that she's absolutely insane and it's all in her head and she's just paranoid and it turns out all of the red flags were there and it, it was true and she was right all along but there are so many horror films based on this idea and then i mean so many adaptations of rebecca not even just the Half alfred hitchcock one like we see it in crimson peak we see it in shadow of a doubt we see it in so many films that women men do just convince women that they are insane to try and cover their tracks and try and not get them mad because Again, another thing that's villainized is when a woman gets angry, she's gonna kill them. She's gonna... She's dangerous, basically, if she's angry.
1: She's too emotional.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we even see the gaslighting theme come back in the 60s when we have Rosemary's baby, which is just such an iconic piece to... I mean, still not as progressive as it should be, but it it's such a good way of showing... The gaslighting and how much of a horror it is, and especially as she's pregnant too, because she's considered over emotional, and you know it, it, that's something that men play on a lot. Is like, oh, she's just emotional. Oh, she's it must be that time of month. Oh, she's pregnant. Uh, her hormones, and it's insane that that is used against her when she's completely right the whole time. All of her suspicions are true. Something's wrong. And something's very, 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 very wrong in that situation. Um, But it just shows that women can't be taken seriously, and that is the whole issue that was trying to be brought to light even back then.
1: I think the real horror within that is when Rosemary finds out that literally – everyone she's come in contact with is in on this plot everyone around her and everyone is trying to quell her suspicions and just oh don't worry you know like just keep drinking this tea just come with us have these snacks you're completely fine to her horror at the end of it all she was right and she just kept being told to ignore that gut feeling and her you know women's intuition to say no there is something severely wrong with this story here and I think it's the loss of autonomy that is so scary in Rosemary's Baby where she realizes, yeah, I was completely
2: played and everyone that I know had a hand in it. I mean, that alone is a great segue point because, you know, we're in the 60s now, which is kind of a weird time for this um domestic gender role drama because the 60s when you think of that, that's the like free love era and Uh, You know, no matter where you are in history, even today, there's this idea of women not having bodily autonomy. Rosemary's baby is everybody trying to force her to keep the literal devil's child. And there's, you see, so much of women fighting for bodily autonomy throughout horror, especially the pure shock between the domestic drama of Rosemary's baby and we're hitting the femme fatale era in the 60s here, where women are kind of like female characters at the very least are given an opportunity to reclaim sex and sexuality uh, and be these sort of more proactive characters. Sure. They're not fully fleshed out. Sure. This is an era of like pure objectification, but at the very least we shift into a modicum of power here.
0: Right. So with the femme fatale era, like it, it does seem super progressive because it's, highlighting women it's letting them be free in their sexuality and things like that but a lot of it is women struggling to be taken seriously unless they're really beautiful and unless they have their tits out basically so we're getting there but like we're we're not really there um and i mean especially if you think of like all of the hammer films then i mean these women are icons now and i'm very happy about the fact that The women of Hammer films are recognized and they're remembered, and that's really important. But all of their characters, if they were beautiful and sexual, that meant that they were villains, and it meant that they were dangerous. So it was almost giving the ideal that, yes, women can be sexual, but they're they're dangerous and they're going to kill you. So, like, those aren't the women that you want. And it kind of plays into... This stigma of, like, you know, they're like, oh, not someone to bring home to the parents, which is such a male stereotype of, like, I want to have sex with this girl, but I'm not going to marry her because she's not wife material. She's just a plaything. And that was kind of what they played on in those times was, yeah, you can look at her. She's great. But if you touch her or you, like, try and commit to her, she's going to kill you.
2: And as much as we've moved away from the femme fatale, we still don't really lose that in the final girl. The final girl, it's still, you know, at least for the 80s, early 90s, I think everything up until about Scream, it's the demonization of sex. You, you know, touch this woman that you want to be with and you will be punished by death.
3: I think the woman themselves gets the, harsh, the harshest punishment. I mean, something that stuck with me my whole life is um the year before i was born jason 7 came out and not that i was there obviously the year before i was born but when i started watching horror movies uh, obviously jason was one of them you know is prominent slasher let's watch these movies and the scene that sticks with me the most is probably the one of the most famous scenes uh that i've heard people talking about and like oh it's so cool it's so cool it's great it's hilarious um you know they get done having sex they're in the tent Uh, The guy goes to check on something, disappears, Jason cuts open the tent and pulls this poor girl in her sleeping bag out of the tent, picks the sleeping bag up, and just smacks her up against the tree. And that's how she dies. And it's not like she was a prominent character in the film, but it was just so unnecessary and such a portrayal of how fragile the male ego is that... Like, to Anna's point, this woman's not good enough to marry; she needs to be punished for her sins, but as a male, I can do whatever I want um It's just it was so over the top the fact that obviously you know Jason is real, and a lot of these things are kind of out of this world, but just the fact that he can barehand this sleeping bag and almost shoulder shoulder level to him, and he's what seven feet tall. Just smack her on the tree and that's how she dies. I mean, it was just I, I know I was a little kid when I saw it, but still to this day, something will remind me of it. And I'm just going, what was the point of that scene? Why was it necessary to put that in there, especially because, you know, Jason is one most famous for his giant ass machete for seven films and- at this point. <laughs> Like, yeah, <laughs> it's just it was just so unnecessary and so belittling in a way it almost dehumanizes the female character in that scene to to nothing. They're frail. They're weak. They're so little. We can just barehand them with one hand and do what we want with them as if they're toys. And it was it was really disgusting to me
1: even in the way that they just move past it right after that, it just, it means nothing. Although it's something that has stuck with you this long, you know, something that you feel was, was so horrific for the movie. <laughs> they just are able to move right past it. And it again, kind of just shows how it's the body count is more important than the characterization.
0: Yeah. I'd forgotten about the, the sleeping bag scene until you just mentioned, but it, it it's absolutely horrific. Um, and as you said, John, it is, it's just a mess the way that they, they leave it. Like, he, she just drops her as if she's nothing and then they're on to the next thing and everyone forgets about it. But as much as we say that that era of like the final girls is so progressive and people talk about Scream being, you know, the first time that, you know, the final girl isn't punished for having sex, she still is. And, Even though films like Scream and even like Buffy, um, which was around the same time in the 90s, they both show the lead woman having sex, being a powerful, strong woman that can survive everything, but they still have to punish them for having sex. Yeah, they, they live, but then... So we have both Buffy and Angel. We have Sid and Billy and both these women have sex with them but their punishment is that oh yeah you slept with them but now this guy is going to turn on you and try and kill you and so in one way shape or form they are still being punished for having sex it's just not that they're being killed straight away they're like being long punished which is like even worse
2: yeah buffy got punished for eight seasons and sid got punished for five movies
0: yeah, and I mean the most progressive thing about both those things is you see how worn down these women get as the films and the series go on by the punishment they're receiving for being women. Portia and Michelle that, Geller got a, punished in both. Oh that, God, that's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, as much as it seems progressive, they're still they're still holding on to the control over women, which is is what the whole punishment for sex is all about. It's a way for men historically to try and stop women from being promiscuous or having their own freedom or their own sexuality because men are terrified of what women can do. And if they let that go and don't show any form of punishment for it, then they'll think, oh, we're safe. So it's still a warning, as progressive as Scream and Buffy are in general, it's still, we're still not there.
1: A lot of that also takes root with Psycho where that was one of the first times that we saw a woman being punished for sex you know and punished brutally and they just had 37 that times, also right is it 37
0: in my head I was trying to count the man- amount of ee, 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 ee. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but even in a film like that which is so iconic and so historic I mean it brings up a whole other question of the characterization of what it could be considered loosely a trans character in Norman?
2: Yeah, I mean, as progressive as horror is, and I do think that it is the most aware genre and the most socially conscious genre, horror has had this incredible problem with demonizing trans characters. Norman's a little bit of a tough one where there's clearly something more going on here, and it's not that Norman feels as though he is a woman, he feels he is his mother, but we see that, Again, it's that notion of body horror and bodily autonomy coming back to characters who uh, represent as women. We see it with Norman. We see it more specifically. It brings my mind to Sleepaway Camp. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. Sleepaway Camp is a big one. For all intents and purposes, like everything that Angela went through and for most of the film, she's we're assuming going to be the final girl. And then we get the twist, which is still a fantastic twist. Great. But. In the grand scheme of things, maybe a little bit disservicing.
0: Yeah, I know a lot of people who have cancelled Sleepaway Camp because of the way that it was handled. Which is completely fair enough, but they are still fantastic films and it's not you say addressed they, again. But there's a couple of sleepaway camps you can skip. Oh yeah, there is a couple of really bad ones. But there's three good <laughs> films altogether and not in the, that sequence. But um the first three that were made were great. And then the other two, which I'd like labeled two and five or something. Anyway, um, I go a lot more into that on our summer campus episode. So, so go back to that for that one. Um, but yeah, the representation is terrible because it is giving, it's almost as if the twist wasn't enough and they thought, here's something else for shock value. But what they don't realize is that, it's, it's completely demonizing trans people and saying like, oh, look, they're crazy. And it's the same with Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. Buffalo it's, Bill's another
2: tough one where I don't think I would go as far as to call Buffalo Bill a trans no. character. The movie does make the point
1: to say that they are not an actual trans character, but that doesn't help the fact that society then took it and said, oh, right, this is a trans character. They missed the point that is clearly stated in the movie and in the book. And just kind of roll with it because we're just so accustomed to seeing it being done that way with Psycho, with Sleepaway Camp, um, you know, all dating back to the story of Ed Gein and you know his obsession with his mother. We we kind of ingested that message and just didn't process it quite the way it was meant to be taken.
2: I mean, there's clearly a lot of issue with body dysmorphia and gender dysmorphia in horror. And again, I think horror is one of the few genres that for the length of time that we've been watching horror movies is bold enough to actually tackle those. Credit where credit is due. It has not done the best job of representing these characters, but at least it has opened the door to do so, you know, a hundred years later.
1: I, I think one of the best examples of that is being able to get someone like Jamie Clayton in the role of Pinhead in the recent- Yeah, um, dude. In the recent installment of Hellraiser.
3: That's a remake I can get behind.
1: That was great. <laughs> uh, that was, was phenomenal. The fact that they were able to go back to, again, the original source material and make the Hell Priest this androgynous figure and having someone like Clayton in that role was just- I I loved that so much that got me so hyped for it and yeah grim I can I can echo that sentiment that was a remake that I absolutely got I loved
2: mind. it and it feels like a full transition of having Jamie Clayton play the new female Hell Priest
0: it's not even a a remake really it's just a reworking of the original the story that Clive Barker had and representing it in it I really does it, feel like it stands it, on
2: its own two feet as its own yeah. addition to the Hellraiser franchise. I know we're all about rebooting stuff right now, but it does stand on its own. You can it, you can watch all the other ones without it damaging your view of how Hellraiser is.
3: I'm actually glad you said that because I want to make a point. And with this and celebrating women, a lot of people, when they're comparing things that men used to do and what women are doing now... They take it from the stance of kind of, oh, like a woman can do that too. But it's funny to see because in that remake specifically, she did a phenomenal job. And to me, I would have been more than okay if that was the first one. Like It was just, I didn't think of it as male and female. She played a role outstandingly, by the way and it just felt like it belonged it, it it i mean to me it was a really great step in the direction that oh guess what this doesn't have to be male because you still have that little bit of you know fear she's so you,
2: sinister
3: yes you have the portrayal really? that this this is the way it, it should be done. Like, this is amazing. Like there was, it never crossed my mind. Like, Oh, you know, like a woman can be scary too. No, like it was just, this is the movie here. It is. And the actor within the movie did a phenomenal job portraying what she needed.
2: To. Also on top of that, like, again, we're talking about this evolution. um, Obviously, original Hellraiser, the costume design was very BDSM based. There is an era of sexuality to it. Um, And that's another point that, you know, I think we should talk about in a different episode where like Clive Barker's influence as an LGBTQ director uh, is important. But in this one. Because, you know, we just talked about the femme fatale era and making things kind of sexualized and sexy as like a form of power. They didn't do that. They grossed it up. It's all practical effects. All of their costumes are just their bodies in these flayed, uh, morbidly gorgeous settings. Um, and that really gets into that that body horror that we see in a lot of... Um, female representation, and uh, female filmmaking. And I think Hellraiser doing that is a, a really great way to lean into that. Especially, fun fact, Clayton started her career as a makeup artist. Obviously, Clive Barker is synonymous with body horror. There are so many gross-out, over-the-top, um, very anatomical kills in clive barker films and kai barker stories and i really again just to emphasize that fact that we've been seeing this from women in film f- since the beginning uh we go back to mary shelley frankenstein is a body horror at its core there is something to be said for how women are rebelling against these norms by dealing with this anatomical representation we see it all the way up to you know julia who's Uh, titane
0: i think the reason why a lot of female written directed um topics are based around like autonomy is because it is it's the height of horror in the real world for us is the constant threat of men trying to take over our bodies basically um and unfortunately it's such A prevalent thing right now that is actively happening is men completely trying to control women's bodies. And if they're not being sexualized, they're being controlled. And to lose control of your own body is the most terrifying thing that for most women that they can imagine.
3: So in 2007, uh, Teeth was made and it was about a young female who wore a purity ring and ended up being sexually assaulted, and found out that basically her vagina had teeth in it. And, you know, the first, the person who sexually assaulted her lost his um, member, we'll call it. And um, in pieces of the movie, it kind of turns her into the villain. Meanwhile, uh, at the end of the day, her body is literally rejecting what is happening to her. And even as this movie ends and you think, okay, it it should end very well. Um, you know, this is a woman who is protecting herself from these devious things that are happening. The ending scene is her getting in a situation where she gets into a stranger's car to get out of the situation she is in. He disgustingly licks his lips and, um, she now has to, uh, really take on that villainous character, even though it's only for protection. She turns to the camera, breaks that fourth wall and kind of gives, you know, that look like, hey, I'm about to bite his thing off with my vagina. So it's just every time up until this point, a woman has done something to either protect herself or ensure that she was safe in her own way. She was still demonized for it. It just made... No sense.
2: I, until you phrased it that way, I didn't even realize, like, nearly the same premise minus the sexual assault, that's Carrie. That's developing into your womanhood and having it used against you.
0: Which is exactly the same for things like Jennifer's Body and Ginger Snaps. Um, Oh my god, yeah,
2: Ginger Snaps.
0: Talk about body
2: horror, the uh, transitions in that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's the true coming-of-age story, and it's showing it kind of plays on the male perspective of like how terrified they are of women having hormones or women bleeding for five days and not dying. Um, Like, so it plays on that, but it's all ginger snaps and Jennifer's body are so good for women because they can completely relate to how terrifying these changes that are happening to your body growing up are. And it, how out of control it feels to be going through that hormonal imbalance and the fact that they've turned that into you know becoming a demon or becoming a werewolf as a representation for a woman for a girl sort of going through puberty basically is just genius and we even though we see ginger and jennifer both sort of sexualized in a way it's more of a sort of metaphor for how men, as soon as these things start happening to a, a girl, changes their perception of what she even looks like. It's like as soon as a woman starts coming into puberty, all the guys go, and they pay attention. And it's just a dramatization of that. Um, And yeah, super relatable.
1: It's so telling of... A woman's experience that, you know, the, the three of us as men will watch movies like this and not catch the context that's in there and the personal experience that's built into stories like this. For us, you know, we can watch a movie like Teeth and be like, oh, wow, that's that's incredible. Like, I love how crazy this story is. And, you know, and Carrie and Jennifer's body and Ginger Snaps. But as a woman, you are now taking this as wow, no, like this is exactly what we go through. This isn't just this zany werewolf movie. As far fetched as it may seem to us, to you, you're like, yeah, that's exactly what happens.
2: I mean, I think a big part of that now is the fact that more women are having their voices heard in the industry. And, you know, this has been a bit of a progression. There have been women behind the scenes and a lot of women who have not gotten the credit they deserve for the work that they did in film, but something like ginger snaps, you know, everybody associates it with John Fawcett, but he directed and Karen Walton is the one who wrote it. So having that experience feel so accurately portrayed comes from a woman's perspective.
1: And it's not a shock to anyone that women have been in the industry, both in front of the camera and behind the scenes for this long. I mean, we recently just got such a big uh, uproar over the fact that Nia Candy Candyman kept getting uh, miscredited as Jordan Peele's film. You know, although he was in the role of producer, so many people were, were getting confused as to whose movie it actually was. And, you know, that was that was definitely a sore spot for a lot of fans. I
2: mean, when you hear such-and-such's film title, you immediately think this person must have directed it because we do this thing where we hail director, hail director, hail director. But it's weird that for something like Candyman, it was the producer's film. Can you
3: fully blame society for that, though? I mean, one, we've been trained to think like that, like you just said, but two, at some point... You have somebody in such a prominent standing in the public eye. For me, this is where Jordan Beale should have stepped back and said, hey, you know, this isn't my movie. This is Daya's movie. But no, he didn't do that. The way I like to think about it is there are unwritten, I guess, rules, right? That we've been, as a society, following from the beginning of time till now. And some of them still repeat every single year, day after day. And it, that cycle's not going to break until the frail ego of a man can be set aside and give that credit where the credit's due. Because, to me, all Jordan Peele had, had to do, and I know he sent that tweet late, late, after that movie was released, about whose right. film it was. But that's not good enough. It should have never gotten to that standpoint. Because, to me, Candyman is such a big figurehead. It's a household in, name.
2: Everybody has at least right, heard of in it. in horror. It would have sold would without have his s- name anyway.
3: Exactly. It would have stood on its own from the beginning. And sure, you can say, oh, but we'll never know that. And you're right, we won't. We won't ever know that. Maybe not until the next one. When It's actually taken seriously that a woman did something that was, in a lot of people's eyes, phenomenal. And it didn't need a man's backing. Why do we have to put a woman's good deed on the back of a man Constantly, somebody who's already got enough um, attention and limelight. It's time for us to move over and give these women what they deserve.
2: It's so much of that has to do with marketing, and we've been seeing it from the beginning of the industry. Even come back over a 100 years ago, you have somebody like Alice Guy Blanche, who was the first female filmmaker um, but she also, she opened with horror. She opened with body horror. Her t- uh, film, Turn of the Century Surgery, um, it's a body horror at its core. But most people are just discovering Alice Guy Blanche's innovations in the industry now, a hundred and something years later. And even, Anna, I know you love Metropolis, but Thea Von Harbo, like, she she got nearly no credit for making Fritz Lang's career.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a classic Deborah Hill, John Carpenter situation when it comes to Fia Von Habu and Fritz Lang. Um, she wrote Metropolis and she also produced Metropolis um, and she wrote, produced and directed like 130 films in her lifetime. Um, and And I don't know a lot of people who know who she is. I mean, I didn't know who she was until I had to really i went on a deep dive into metropolis because it's one of my favorite films i wrote a dissertation back back when i was in university on it because i'm just so obsessed with it um and that's when i realized who she was and all of the amazing things that she did with film even during world war ii she she had a deal with the nazis where she would make films for them as entertainment but in exchange for that she was basically bargaining with people's lives. So every time that she made a film, she said, okay, but I want to save these people's lives, and they would hand over people for care. Um, And she even saved her second husband during that time from being killed because he was Jewish. Um, So, but yeah, again, no one knows who she is, and she's hardly credited on anything. And even when people a taut film, she probably doesn't come up, even though she's one of the most prominent people ever. Um, And it's, we see the same in horror when it comes to like creature from the black lagoon. I mean, obviously the majority of people in the horror community have been hearing about Melissa and Patrick for the last few years now, but that's because it's only just recently come out that she designed and created the creature from the black lagoon makeup. And she was purposely taken off the credits because they didn't want a woman to be known as the one who was deserving of that credit
2: it's such a a crazy thing to me because for so long throughout history the marketing has been quote-unquote sex sells so it, it it just doesn't even make sense from a marketing standpoint you know that we're trying to like push male names we're trying to push sex and sexuality it's this jumbled idea of how to market these films that has ruined so many good ones i saw it back with um crimson peak gets me all the time because it they were like oh we can't market a domestic drama horror it has to be a scary ghost story and it ruined a lot of people's Which experience quite literally the point of right the film. like they, it's one of the first lines but that's the same thing that stuff that jennifer's body suffered from
0: yeah, I didn't even watch Jennifer's Body because I thought I saw the adverts when it first came out and went, This looks like a chick flick horror comedy and I'm not into it. And I did not watch it. It looked awful. Um and it wasn't even until I met you, Anthony, you started talking about it. I went, Oh, I never bothered with it. And you made me watch it. And I was really reluctant even then that I was like, This is nothing like what all of the advertising was portraying to me. It's absolutely nothing like that. It's so good. Um, But it wasn't advertised that way at all.
1: I think one movie that we need to applaud for how it didn't fumble the marketing is Barbarian, because they kept the marketing so sparse. And, you know, besides me, like, usually trying to stay away from previews nowadays, because they just give you every fucking beat of the movie, uh, this movie was just so sparse with the information that it did let out that even having seen a preview i went into this having no idea what i was in for and i'm happy about that
0: with barbarian if i had any inkling of what it was actually about i there's no way i would have watched it because the premise of barbarian is basically sexual assault um and some even though that would be a complete trigger for me um, I watched *Barbarian* without knowing what it was about, and somehow they managed to take that topic and not trigger it in any way for me personally, and which is is unheard of in a film that is about that topic. Um, and it's it was just crazily well done, and you could tell that it was approached with such care and such experience and such research that they could tell that story without triggering and without placing the blame on the female. I mean, even the victim at the end who is portrayed as the villain throughout, you come to understand that the reason why she is attacking is because she has been attacked and she is defending herself and she's, you know, as much a a victim and survivor as the sort of final girl and every single guy in that movie is betrayed as a dick. And I appreciate that. And that ties into films like The Menu, which I also loved. Um, and the thing is with The Menu that it really shows that a girl that can come from... Finally, we get a film where a girl can come from an unconventional background, have sex, or even in this case, be a sex worker, um, and still be worthy of saving themselves and without using their body, but by using wit and courage which is so underutilized in films because on a day-to-day basis, women are unfortunately constantly at risk of being in dangerous situations. We are hardwired to be prepared to defend ourselves by any means from these threats every single day. And that is every single woman's tragic superpower is that we are completely prepared for attack and defense every time we set out foot out of the door. Um, and every time that we get into a car, every time that we go on public transport. And that's why it's so important for directors to remember that the majority of women and a lot of men or non-binary people for that matter have been through sexual assault at some point in their life. And everyone has different trauma triggers. And when survivors watch films involve sexual assault you're kind of taking them out of fantasy and intrigue into a painful reminder of reality which is not what you want and every i know everyone has triggers and it's impossible to avoid every single person's trigger in the world because there's so many of them but Every single person in the world knows that sexual assault is going to be a worldwide trigger for millions of people. Trauma isn't horror and it isn't clever to try and connect to your audience on a level where they switch off or are left in pain for, like, God knows how long because of your work. That's not entertainment. They're not going to come back to you. But the thing that people always use as an excuse that I hate is especially now that we have so many revenge films is that everyone goes, well, it shows the victim getting revenge in the end, but I'm telling you now on behalf of so many survivors, there is absolutely no revenge, no revenge for us and no amount of torture or pain towards an attacker will ever come close to leveling out the lifetime of pain and trauma that survivors feel on a daily basis. So if you can't understand that then just don't make these movies. So obviously film and horror especially is such a big escape for me personally. Um and it's so important which is is why you want to to take people into these fantasies and not focus so harshly on horrible realities. I'm going to jump straight into my recommendation because it really is the epitome of completely taking you out of this world. Um, so my recommendation is a film called November. It's uh, from 2017. It's an Estonian film. And I've got to tell you, it's probably the the most beautiful cinematography I've ever seen in a film. If you take The Lighthouse and The Witch and mesh them together into one film, and add Estonian folk horror and fucking creature puppets that are out of this world. That's what this film is. It's, it's so good. Watch it. Um, have you guys got any recommendations?
1: Sure do. I'd like to recommend the film significant other. I watched this recently and it is kind of a sci-fi horror. Um, again, taking a character, giving us a cool little twist and, and give us, giving us a character who has to use their, their wits and their will to survive to make it through to the end of the film. So, uh, yeah, I believe it's available on Hulu. Check out Significant Other.
3: So I have like a recommendation and then like a
1: 1A recommendation. So
3: I'm surprised we didn't talk about it at all, but ready or not. I don't want to give anything away because I feel like talking about it just does. But if you want to see a badass woman, just take down a bunch of dickheads watch this movie but also (laughs) a lesser good version of that the invitation which i believe came out last year uh wasn't as good but also badass woman who doesn't need the um not to say she's not attractive but doesn't need to show off the sexual appeal to be a badass throughout the film so go watch both of those
2: i'm gonna need you guys to hear me out on mine Um, and I think it does tie to kind of, as you were saying, Anna, suspending that disbelief, uh, getting out of the reality of it. Um, and it's going to be an obvious one, but we've never recommended it before. I want to recommend Lucio Fulci's Zombie, and I want to recommend it on this episode in particular because it is co-written by Elisa Berganti, uh, who penned a lot of Fulci's work, uh, and I don't think people realize that.
0: I can't believe I forgot to mention her on the same line as Fear von Harvey. Completely.
1: I thought you were going to say that the shark in the movie is a female.
2: <laughs> With that, do you guys want your fear of the day?
0: Yeah. All right. Yes. Is it men? Honestly. <laughs> yeah. It oh was no! Did I get it? The fear oh my of God. Men. <laughs> No, I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, props to you. <laughs> uh. Killed me before I even came out the gate. Sorry, what was it called? (laughs) (laughs) The fear of the day
2: is androphobia, which is, as you said, the fear of men. My bad.
0: (laughs) Thanks for tuning into the Hauntsville Cryptcast. I'm Anna.
2: I'm Anthony. I'm John. And I'm Grim. Happy haunting.
0: Happy haunting. (laughs)